Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. I am your hostess with the mostest. You can call me Rocky. And this week we are talking about Marvel's The Eternals, Earth's Lightiest Heroes. Now, this is only our second ever solo episode of the pod that I have done. First one was on Drake's Certified Lover Boy, whenever it was that that came out, I guess, um, September, like two months ago. Um, but that one, I think it was kind of a success, and so I have decided that it's okay for me to do it again. Um, could I have gotten someone on to talk about Eternals? Probably, but the Tower of Terror episode was so late last week, and I just sort of felt like I'm mostly friends with, like, people who don't see Marvel movies, and the overlap of people who do see Marvel movies, people who'd be on the podcast, people who it would be worth me talking about Eternals with on the podcast, yada yada, I just didn't feel like, I felt like there was a delicate balance there, and other than Raven, who I just had on last week, I, I struggled to think of a lot of people who would be right to talk about it with. So um, I just saw it today, and maybe I should have given it a little more time to sit, but I did come back here and take a bunch of notes trying to go back through the plot sort of immediately after I watched it, and I, I sort of went insane, so I feel like I'm ready to <laughs> share some thoughts. Uh, but in the meantime, I am going to do a little bit of a dun-dun-dun-dun-dun what's pulpin' segment. Uh, there's not too much to talk about this week, but I did want to give a quick shout-out to the new Limp Biscuit album, Still Sucks. Fans of the show will remember my episode with the great Mitch Mitchell where we went through Limp Biscuits discography. Perhaps I could have brought him back on to talk about this one, but I don't know if that would have worked out. I just, um, you know, the album came out, and having just listened through the whole Limp Biscuit catalog, I probably gained an appreciation, an ear for this music that I wouldn't have had before. And yeah, I honestly enjoyed it a lot. I definitely liked it a lot more than the uh, Gold Cobra album, the other most recent uh, Le Biscuit album. Uh, long time coming, and relative to that, maybe it's slight, but it does feel very classic Limp Biscuit. Um, as someone who is not necessarily a purist for, for, for the band, I feel like it's pretty much on par with their, you know, with the albums that are associated with their prime, to the extent that one feels or doesn't feel that they have a prime. Uh, but there's some great tracks on here. I really like, uh, I do like Dad Vibes, which was the single. I also like Turn It Up, Bitch, which is another song that they previewed in concert before the album came out. Um, and both of those songs kind of have this sort of old-school hip-hop thing. They're a little, like, even relative to classic Limp Bizkit, they're, they're sort of toned down and more more leaning into hip-hop. I also liked um, Love the Hate and the song Goodbye, which is very much like a, like a pop song, like something you would hear from, I don't know, any indie rock band you can name today, the fucking 1975 or whatever. Uh, but there's something... Limp Bizkit's very cheeky on this album, and they've always been very cheeky, but especially on this one, it feels like they've reached a point where any idea that, like... Because when they were getting increasingly cheeky in the 2000s, it was also like, but they were winning Grammys, and they were getting all these big deals, and it was like, maybe they're a real serious band, and maybe they could, you know, do a song that wins awards or whatever. Uh, this, you know, this is very much at a point where they're reflecting on their career, and I feel like that is really, they're really in a zone that's good for them. Still Sucks is uh, a really on-par Limp Bizkit album, and that's something that, I don't know if anyone listening to this 
uh, you know, wants to have any input on the future. But I, as much as this podcast is uh, a growth opportunity for me and something that I just kind of like doing in order to get into the space and continue to, you know, be working and being creative and also talk to people who I don't get to talk to all the time. Uh, I, you know, I do hope that I can get into a place where I'm maybe doing this semi-professionally where I can you know make money off of it and I'm obviously not there yet but I intend to keep at it until I am uh and so I'm I've been thinking about like what I have to offer because right now the only thing I can really do is pulp friction I don't have time for much else and until I'm making money off it it's probably just going to be pulp friction but once it becomes more of an operation I'm wondering if I would want to do something because I, I make these lists every week uh, you know I have these long running lists of all the you know the new albums that come out every week the new songs that come out every week and when I did uh the platform my the student radio show that me and Xander co-hosted I was uh, that was a segment that I would have at the end of that show. So I, I don't know if I have the, the time or the energy to make that a real segment on this show. I don't know if it would be good content on this show, but I'm wondering if, you know, if it reaches a point where I can add another show onto this thing, would people be interested in me doing a weekly movie slash music roundup um you know just going through the new album releases and sharing some brief thoughts on them the new songs that i like etc uh because i do you know pay a lot of attention to that and i you know i obviously put out these playlists that some people respond to and um yeah i think that could really be something that's interesting to me so if you if you'd be interested in that let me know if you have any other ideas for things you might want to hear from me in the future things that you like about this show things that maybe you want to see improved about this show i accepting all kinds of feedback on this as we're still in this early stage of growth yeah i guess the music thing could also be a youtube thing but then i'd basically be doing like like the the anthony fantano thing and i don't necessarily want to get into that lane uh entirely i'd probably just want to you know I don't want to just do podcasts and I don't know when I would, at what point I would have like the energy to be doing like video essays or something. But if I'm going to do YouTube, I want to do like something different on YouTube or Twitch or whatever it ends up being. Um, so yeah, that is what's pulping both in terms of what is new in pop culture that people aren't talking about and what is new with Pulp Friction, the show. And with that in mind, let's get into the history of Eternals. So before we talk about Eternals the movie, uh, we do have to talk about Eternals the comics, and I don't have too many notes on that, because after coming out of this movie and wanting to record the same night, I really was not interested in getting too into the lore of the many, many characters in this thing. But basically, 1970, Jack Kirby, this, you know, obviously legendary Marvel guy, he uh, leaves Marvel. <laughs> And I'm sure there's a whole great story about why that happened, but I did not look into it. He leaves Marvel, he goes to DC, and he makes a new series called New Gods. And the New Gods storyline, it's about these two sets of immortal, super powerful beings that are at war with each other. It had originally sort of sprung out of this idea that he had for a Ragnarok uh, plotline that he was going to work on uh, on Thor, and then he obviously had this falling out with Marvel, and so he brought those ideas and put them into New Gods with this idea in the back of his head that, like, the origin point of all this is the the Ragnarok plotline in Thor, where all the, all the Norse gods, you know, are killing each other. And that storyline was supposed to have 
a definitive end. We, I don't think we know exactly what it is. Again, I didn't do a ton of research for this part, uh, but basically the New Gods comics were canceled because they weren't selling very well after a while. They had that uh, dip. And so DC and Jack Kirby continued to work on other things, I think, but that storyline came to an end before he could really finish it. And then Kirby returned to Marvel in 1976 and he began working on a thematically similar storyline called Eternals. And perhaps the idea there was to come back to the Ragnarok thing, or maybe it was just to finish what he started with New Gods and tell that ending that he never got to tell. Or maybe he just liked this idea of these, you know, these immortals and they are, you know, having cosmic adventures and they're war with each other. So that series was also canceled before it could have uh, a definitive ending. Uh, but the loose ends were kind of tied up in later installments of Thor, and the characters have been returning semi-regularly since then, most notably in a 2006 arc that was written by Neil Gaiman. And that sort of brings us uh, to the movie. We're obviously skipping ahead a little bit, but again, I did not take many notes on the comics, because even though I like to be very extensive in the notes that I take, um, I decided not to. But maybe I didn't. We'll see. In April of 2018, Kevin Feige announced that Marvel was developing an Eternals movie for their Phase 4 lineup. One of the Eternals, you know, Thanos is an Eternal, so we, there's already been an Eternal in, introduced in the MCU, and when he was introduced there were a lot of articles out there about how, like, Thanos was an Eternal and what it means that Eternals are starting to come into it. The thing is that, like, it's something funny to think about about the success of the MCU is that... It was kind of less so with Avengers, but still kind of so with the, the Avengers thing at the end of Iron Man. But, like, if you think about the end of the first Avengers movie, the post credit scene where Thanos appears and says, I'll do it myself. And then the entirety of Phase 2 and Phase 3 were all building up to Thanos doing it himself. Sisters are doing it for, him, for themselves, he said. And the thing is... The, the reason anybody cared about that whole arc with Thanos, the reason anyone was on board for more Thanos stuff to happen, the reason people were hooked on it, is because everyone went online and read some fucking screen rant. Uh... <laughs> It's funny because uh, there are a few articles in my name on Screen Rant, but, uh, you know, went to one of these, you know, Den of Geek or something and read an article about who Thanos is. Because nobody knew. Nobody knew offhand who Thanos was going to be. And everyone for the, you know, they introduced him and then they cut away from him for like this whole time. Sort of in the Guardians movies, he's there, but it's not, you know, this whole plan that he has with Loki that he doesn't even really have by the time they get to it. Like all that, the, the, the whole hype for that just comes from people looking it up online. And I think Marvel has gotten pretty extreme when it comes to, you know, we'll get to it when we get into what the after credits scenes are in this movie. By the way, there are going to be spoilers for this movie. So if you care about about it um you know wait and go see it and then come back to this i am not necessarily saying that you should see it but uh it's worth a watch you know if you if you want to you should and um yeah uh we're gonna get into spoiler territory basically but uh that, that was all i wanted to say is that everything in the mcu is not even just not based on what's in the movie it's based on like what you have to look up like fucking <laughs> 
Like, to go into Infinity War and Endgame, you not only need to have the context of, like, 20 movies from various franchises that don't totally overlap with each other, but they all sort of come into this one, but you also have to have the context of things you look up online that aren't in the movie. <laughs> to look up that like like there's no there's i guess in guardians it's like we introduce thanos and he's you know a shitty dad or whatever but like so much of it is like you know you can't go into infinity war and instantly be like okay thanos cool you do have to a little bit go in and be go, go in and look online and be like this is what <laughs> like this is what he is and i think it's crazy that this that this you know big this this like perfect genius franchise so much of it is based on things that aren't actually in the movies even let alone the, the all the shit that is in the movies that they just fucking say that nah, that didn't happen like the like the 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 fact that the first introduction to thanos is him you know, Loki coming up to him and being like, I failed you. I don't know what, I don't know what fucking happened there. And then like, by the time we actually get to the, the Thanos plan, it doesn't have anything to do with Loki. That whole thing got thrown out. So anyway, um, Marvel saw doing an Eternals movie as an opportunity to expand the universe. They were particularly interested in doing like a standalone ensemble movie. Cause there are all, are all these like big, you know, groups of heroes in the Marvel comics and based on the things that they're kind of hinting at with, you know, whatever this Julia Louis-Dreyfus thing is that's not going to actually happen for like 10 years. They're building towards more of those like Young Avengers and these different teams that exist. And so they were they were clearly thinking like, you know, Guardians, it's like they're introducing new characters and it was very successful, but part of it was that those characters um, were sort of integrated into the story. And like I said, Thanos was there and it was sort of building out something about the universe. And um, obviously Avengers is a team up of characters from other movies. So they were sort of trying to experiment with this idea of just having a, a complete ensemble of new characters that's only sort of tangentially related to the films we've seen so far. And again, that is kind of what they did with Guardians, but they, that's what they were looking for. So Feige announces in April, it's not long after that we hear that it's handed off to the writing duo of Ryan and Kaz Furpo. Uh, <laughs> the Furpos were known for their commercial work, short films, a 2017 documentary on the Syrian refugee crisis that Kaz directed, and their as-yet-unproduced script, Ruin, which won the 2017 Blacklist. They were, like, the, the top Blacklist writers, and what they got is a movie that fucking Justin Kurzel picked up and it never got made, and they got to write, you know, uh, Eternals. Um, but actually, just as an aside... Only six movies from the 2017 Blacklist have been produced. Like, there have been a few more from, like, the 2018 ones, and there's, you know, a bunch of things in the pipeline from the even more recent ones, but it's crazy that, like... The, the blacklist from four years ago, and I think it speaks to, you know, the lack of interest in original films in Hollywood today, but also just like, I, I don't know, something about, something about, you know, the, that shit from four years ago. Like, these are, these are the films that have gotten made. The Lodge, Infinite, Kate, The Survivor, Breaking News in Yuba County, and Finch, which came out this week. <laughs> Like, that's it. Those, like, they had, you know, a hundred fucking scripts or whatever on there. They had a whole bunch of scripts. And usually, you, you can look at a list from, like, 2006 or from 2010. We talked about the script that became Succession, and that was from, I think, 
I think that was 2010. That might have been 2011. But, uh, you know, and we talked about all these films, all the, you know, from like different years, different genres, different like corners of the industry that all got made from like Fun Size to Jackie to the one that became Succession. And then for the 2017 one, that's just like six movies. Um, maybe you've heard of one of them. <laughs> the Lodge was, you know, The Lodge was a big deal, I guess. I didn't see it. And then Finch. People are talking about Finch, but, you know, a year from now, nothing, nothing's going to be going on for Finch. So by August of 2018, the director search had been officially narrowed down to four choices. TV director Nicole Castle, who worked on uh, Westworld and I think The Americans and, you know, just, just doing these big prestige TV shows. Uh, Travis Knight, who did Kubo and the Two Strings and Bumblebee. Uh, Ciro Guerra and Christina Gallego, who were the duo behind Birds of Passage. And another movie whose name I forgot that was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film in 2015. But they were, you know, these big uh, Colombian directors. And Chloe Zhao, who at the time was known for The Rider, had also done Songs My Brother Taught Me. And of course would later do Nomadland. Uh, Chloe Zhao was also in the running to direct Black Widow, but it seemed like she really wanted to do Eternals. She approached them as a fan and had this extensive presentation on her vision for Eternals. And something about, I, I think she might have like been a little coy and let slip in there that maybe she's being considered for other franchises because Marvel was very much like, we need to snatch her up right away. The, the list is narrowed down in August and she's hired in September. So they're, you know, they're, they're very quick on getting her on board. She drew inspiration from a wide range of influences, uh, previous entries in the MCU, both the Jack Kirby Eternals comics and the Neil Gaiman comics, uh, classic science fiction films, manga, ancient aliens, uh, Yuval Noah Harari's book Sapiens, uh, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel is something that she recently cited as an influence, the films of Terrence Malick, and the Final Fantasy series of games. This is a, this is a very like big and unwieldy movie. And that's something that's I think has been very abundantly clear from the beginning, whether it's coming from the press tour itself or coming from the reviews about it, which we'll get into in a second. But if you want to get an idea for just like, uh, <laughs> if you want to get an idea for how like big this movie is, this is a quote from an Entertainment Weekly article I was reading on Chloe Zhao's process. She particularly loved the idea of treating the Earth itself as an eleventh character in the film. <laughs> So you know how people talk about, people will say, like, in Sex and the City, New York is the fifth character. In, you know, some rom-com, New York's the, the third protagonist. The Earth is the 11th character. The 11th major arc-having, named, you know, important emotional character in Eternals is the Earth. And it's not just like, you know, the, the environment. It's like the course of human history is, is 11th build in this movie. Speaking of billing, the earliest casting announcement came in March 2019 when word got out that Angelina Jolie had been cast allegedly as Cersei. Of course, she turned out to be playing Fina. Next was Camille Nanjiani and Don Lee, and then Richard Madden and Salma Hayek, along with the news that the film would feature Marvel's first gay superhero. Which, you know, you know how Disney is about that. 
Variety reported in July that Millie Bobby Brown had been cast, which she denied. And at 2019 San Diego Comic-Con, the full cast was brought out. We got that whole, you know, the big lineup you remember. And this was that big Comic-Con where they announced Blade and they did the whole the whole uh, nine yards. And it was like, okay, we did Endgame. And I was like, what's going to happen next? And it was like, here's what's going to happen next. Angelina Jolie is Thena. Nagiani is Kingo. Lee is Gilgamesh. Madden is Icarus. Hayek is Ajax. Lauren Ridloff is Makari. Brian Tyree Henry is Fastos. Um, Leah McHugh is Sprite. Filming began the same month, and it was quickly confirmed that Fastos would be Marvel's first gay superhero, appearing with his husband and their son on screen. Zhao said that she was given the freedom to shoot on location and use the cameras and rigs she also had also used in Nomadland. She directed the action sequences, which, you know, Marvel sometimes doesn't let people do, and it's kind of complicated, but her biggest inspiration for shooting those action sequences was The Revenant. Uh, the director of photography, Ben Davis, was part of, was like an in-house Marvel DP. He worked on Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, Doctor Strange, and Captain Marvel. But Zhao says that she lucked out in that Marvel was looking to experiment with this movie. So they were kind of giving her more than they would normally give a director. And I think that, that, um, comes off to a certain extent in the film. I'll get into how I feel about uh, the ways in which it is and isn't like other Marvel movies. But um, speaking of Captain Marvel, it was soon announced that Gemma Chan, who portrayed Minerva in Captain Marvel, would be returning to the MCU as Cersei in Eternals. And there have been character, there have been actors who have played several roles in the MCU. Mahershala Ali obviously played a different role in Luke Cage. It is now playing Blade. That's probably the most like obvious one. But for Gemma Chan to be a character, a, you know, relatively important character in Captain Marvel in 2019. That character dies, and then she's a completely different character in Eternals in 2021. That, like, like, there's something, I think, particularly striking about the quick turnaround on that, and the fact that they're both, like, movie characters, important characters, you know, named dialogue having, like, you know, Marvel sort of presents itself as having this really carved out and carefully considered universe and this is just another way like those uh discrepancies i was talking about before in um things that are brought up and are never brought back and things that you have to sort of look outside the films to get i think another element of that is that um I mean, they just cast Gemma Chan again because that's what they wanted to do. Barry Keoghan was cast as Druig, Kit Harrington as Dane Whitman, and Harish Patel as Kingo's valet Karun. Eternal's initial release date announced at Comic-Con was November 3rd, 2020. During the pandemic, it was moved to February of 2021, then to November of 2021. The film had its world premiere in Los Angeles on October 18th, 2021. It was given an exclusive theatrical release, which might have something to do with the fallout of Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit earlier this year. Uh, Eternals was not released in China due to the government's soured relationship with both Zhao and Marvel. They had, they had banned, um, Shang-Chi for things that Sima Liu had said a couple years ago. And now they, you know, they, they on bad terms, even before the, the gay stuff, which I don't, I don't, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. It was banned in Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and Qatar and Bahrain and Oman due to its depiction of a gay relationship. They did not, you know, cut around it for those countries, but for UAE, Jordan, Lebanon and Egypt they are showing an edited version of the film but it's one that removes all scenes of intimacy which is 
kind of standard uh, procedure for how American movies get shipped over to those countries. So, you know, just some, some nuance there. This past weekend, Eternals opened to $71.3 million, a mild underperformance by Marvel standards, but still the fourth largest opening weekend of 2021. Uh, and it also opened, as we spoke about last week, to an unusually negative critical reaction, becoming the first MCU movie not to be certified fresh, and shortly thereafter, the first to be uh, rotten. It was like, it opened, it started at like, I think a 69, and then it quickly dropped down to a 63, and it was like, oh, this is going below 60, this is getting into the rotten territory, and I think it was maybe 59 when we talked about it on the last show. Anyway, now it is at 46% on Rotten Tomatoes, and maybe that'll be even lower by the time this goes up, I don't know, uh, but it's crazy, like I said last week, because Marvel movies tend to have such it's such a bump from critics, the fact that this is so, this is being so panned either indicates that it, you know, deviates from the Marvel formula and that people didn't like that, or it indicates that it's really, really bad. But here we are, and I saw it today, and um, I had a great sort of theatrical experience moment as I was seeing it where, you know, I was going through the trailers and then it showed, I don't know if you guys have seen this, this, um, this Matt Damon commercial for Crypto.com where he's like on a space station and he's talking about the people in history who almost did something but didn't and the people in history who did and how fortune favors the bold, yada yada, and then at the end it's like Crypto.com. But that commercial came on in between trailers at this screening of Eternals and everyone in the theater, there was like 20, 25 people in there and everyone was like vocally pissed off. <laughs> when the crypto.com thing showed up at the end of that commercial. And um, what a great place to begin. Um, this movie, I, I, I didn't hate it, first of all, and I'm obviously someone who is not above hating a Marvel movie. Maybe I, it could be something like uh, how a lot of Marvel movies go, where when I see it for the first time, I'm like, yeah, that was fine. That wasn't great. And then over time, I think back on it, and I'm like... That was pretty bad. Uh, or it could be something where I, you know, I end up with a similar interpretation of what I have now, which is that it does deviate from the Marvel formula and the ways in which it's different from Marvel movies are generally good. The problems are problems that other Marvel movies have that are just more obvious here because uh, the rest of it is different. And that includes, you know... Uh, dull photography. Again, you know, the DP Ben Davis was sort of a Marvel staple. Um, the poor action at times. I actually think some of the action is pretty good here, but there's a lot of, you know, quick cuts and all that. Um, and the, there, there are performance things in terms of the way that everything is delivered with this gravitas. That didn't used to be a thing in Marvel. I feel like that started really, I think it was a, initially a Nolan thing and Marvel started really doing it with Iron Man 3, but then like really leaned into it by the time you get to, I guess, I guess sometime between Avengers and Age of Ultron it has to be. I mean, I think what it really was is that, uh, Winter Soldier came out and, 
people pretended that it was really good for some reason. I don't know. Because, like, for a long time, I would watch Winter Soldier every couple, every like, like once or twice a year, just, just because everyone would rave about it. And I would always be like, I don't get it at all. And every time I would watch it and be like, yeah, that was bad. And I, I've just kind of sort of come to accept that it's bad and that there were sort of... Um, the expectations for Marvel at that point were different, and <laughs> the fact that it sort of that it kind of looked different, and that it had sort of tension to it, and there like like people were easily easily impressed by Marvel doing something different at that time. And then I don't know, I don't know, because Guardians of the Galaxy is my favorite Marvel movie, and I came out like a couple months after that. But I feel like if you're talking about Marvel doing something different, <laughs> you know, there you fucking go. But yeah, Winter Soldier remains probably a bottom five MCU movie for me. And I'm someone who, again, thinks like half of these are good. I didn't think, I didn't think Eternals was that bad. And I, and I say that, but, um, yeah, you know, that, that sort of dour, like world shattering delivery is something that this movie definitely carries over. And I'm sure there are other things too, but, but I'm just going to get into the, uh, narrative. To the extent that I can, because there are no, like, point-by-point -point synopses online, obviously. It's a new movie still in theaters, and, you know, people don't want to give the whole thing away, and, you know, they can't, like, take notes on everything. But also just, like, it jumps around a lot, and... <laughs> it jumps around a lot, and, like, it's really hard to keep track of when things are revealed especially early on because it's sort of jumping back through the whole history of the Eternals time on Earth and the present day and um yeah I think I mostly got a grip on it but there may be things out of place here and things that I forgot because it's like a it's like a three-hour movie man and it you know there's so much going on but the film opens like all great stories do, with in the beginning, the with, you know, there's a there's a text crawl at the beginning, which already we're throwing we're throwing all the Marvel shit out the window and going fucking Star Wars with it. Um, it it felt more like fantasy to me than you know. I guess Star Wars kind of is fantasy, but like you know, Star Wars has that like space, you know, going off into the stars crawl, and it's very epic. This was sort of like a storybook, just like text coming in. It's like in the beginning, the Eternals, yada yada. It felt more like an eighties. It felt like a post. Star Wars 80s fantasy movie, like a Last Starfighter sort of thing. I haven't seen Last Starfighter. I don't know if it actually has, like, a text crawl in it, but the, uh, that's what it felt like to me. It felt like one of those kinds of movies, and um, it basically explains that the Eternals were sent to Earth by the Celestials to fight a vicious species called Deviants, and that's all explained elsewhere in the film, but since the actual pace of, like, the first 15 minutes or so of the movie is so bewildering, I do feel like it's good to have that moment of prep time going in, you know, Captain Marvel starts in a similar way where you're just, like, dumped right into the action, all this shit happening that you have no idea about, this whole world that doesn't exist, and you're like, what the fuck is going on? This could easily have had that, and I like that they just had a little text at the beginning for you to be like, okay, we're in for a lot of lore here. So we get a, um, we see the Eternals Dorito-shaped ship going around the sun. We see Icarus and Cersei, the first two characters we're introduced to, have this sort of brief inconsequential exchange. And then we find ourselves in Mesopotamia 
5000 BC. That already that sequence of events, I might have missed something in there. But we're in Mesopotamia. It's 5000 BC. I know that's the first like actual scene in the movie. And the Eternals are first arriving on Earth. They're fending off the deviants, and they make contact with the developing human society. They you know say hello. They give them a nice a nice little dagger as a as a parting gift. And they well, not parting because they're sticking around. But you know they're making contact with this early form of civilization. It, there was this gif that was going around Twitter a while ago of uh, Angelina Jolie's character, Athena, fighting a deviant, and she's, like, slashing it with a sword, and then it suddenly cuts to another shot where, like, she's holding the sword in the other hand, and, it, you know, people were picking apart the, the, the differences in this shot and how, like, weirdly composited and, you know, sort of mashed together it looks. And then people were defending it, being like... You know, it's trailer footage, so obviously they edited it to be quick and to fit with music and whatever. Like, this is obviously... Maybe the, the effects aren't finished. Like, there's obviously not what's going to be in the movie. No, that that shot exactly as it happens in the, in the GIF is in the movie. Uh, nothing was changed about it. Maybe there was, like, another split second on the first shot before you get to the second shot, but it's very much exactly that scene, and that was something that kind of blew me away because people have, you know, dug in and already picked apart the ways in which just completely different shots brought together there. So we learn in kind of quick succession that Eternals are responsible for a variety of key events in human history. Uh, Fastos benevolently doles out advanced inventions to the people, such as the plow and the steam engine. Sprite uses her illusory powers to invent storytelling. Uh, we learn at the very least that she's responsible for key stories in Greek mythology and for the epic of Gilgamesh. Of course, Gilgamesh and Icarus are both among the Eternals. And that's one thing that I'll say just off the bat to the movie's credit is that it feels thoughtful in terms of how, you know, it feels like it's asking questions about the mechanics of this universe in a way that Marvel movies pretty much never do. And there was a lot of talk, like I sort of mentioned, about how Ancient Aliens was an inspiration for this and other thinking about how these Eternals could have influenced the flow of human history uh, as it developed. And I think there are some questionable ways that that is played out in the movie, but there are also some very interesting ones. But I also just think that it is... I don't know. I just think that, like, the rumination on the Eternals, you know, having this effect on storytelling, and then there are moments later in the movie where there's a scene that we'll get to where they're talking about the Avengers, and there's a scene that comes up pretty quickly where... I'll just I'll just uh, get this out of the way uh, so that we can get to it, but in the present day, the first character we're introduced to is Cersei, who lives in London and works at the Natural History Museum with her boyfriend, Dane. Dane suspects that Cersei may be a wizard, quote, like Doctor Strange due to suspect comments from her child roommate Sprite and some other, her cishet roommate Sprite and the other um, you know, just weirdnesses about her and uh, that, you know, that really got me thinking, that another moment in this movie that feels sort of thoughtful in terms of like, how the ideas of like, fiction have changed in the aftermath of all these, you know, superhero things suddenly being public Maybe not suddenly, but like becoming increasingly public in the, you know, past 10 years in this, in this universe. Like, how can people be entertained by fiction? You know, if, if wizards are real and, you know, with Blade coming up, we'll soon see that vampires are real. Like, they, there's, there's a question of like, 
what you know how storytelling even works in this world and i feel like jow seems to be aware of that and maybe not answering the question but like calling it into question and so i i did think that was interesting so yeah dane thinks that cersei is a wizard and just as she's about to beat those wizard allegations they're confronted by the first deviant spotted in over 500 years and you gotta you gotta imagine just the whirlwind of like we're still you know I don't even know if the Marvel logo has shown up yet. Like, we're still very early into the movie when we've seen them fight the, the, the deviants in Mesopotamia. We've seen them sort of travel through history. We're seeing the present day of Cersei and Sprite fighting the, the return of the deviants. So Cersei has transmutation powers, Sprite has illusion powers, and they both use them together to fight off the deviant and Cersei's flying ex-boyfriend Icarus swoops in to help them save the day. After this, Cersei and Dane part ways so that she and Icarus and Sprite can begin to assemble the rest of the Eternals because the deviants are back. And it's not necessarily clear right away why how Icarus has shown up, but you know, I guess he's been aware that the deviants are back and so now they need to um, get the gang back together. But so yeah, Cersei and Icarus have sex. Happens within the first 20 minutes of the movie. Uh, sort of weirdly, like, you know, I guess I, 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 I am the kind of person who thinks it's good that there can be a sex scene in a Marvel movie. I think that there's been an absence of sex in cinema in recent years and I, you know, I, I guess that there's something I inherently appreciate about it, but it's a weirdly perfunctory <laughs> sex scene, I have to say. First of all, coming so early and not being relevant to the story, which at the end of the day, you know, I was talking about these arrangements with other countries, and it's really not possible for for Disney to ever make a sex scene relevant to the story. The, you know, the motion is there, but the passion is kind of muted and... Yeah, it just it, it it feels really um tacked on and it's a it's a it's a bad sex scene if ever there was one. Um and yeah, there's a lot of jumping around, so I'm I'm trying to keep it mostly in the order that we see, but there's uh, a lot to be missed. Uh in Tenochtitlan in the 1500s, the Eternals feud over their leader Ajax, forbidding them from interact from interfering in human affairs. There's this whole thing where um uh, Thena is suffering from Mad Weary, which is a, a condition involving memory loss that ostensibly results from the burden of eternal life. Um, Ajax says, based on, I guess, the command of their celestial ruler, whose name is Arisham, uh, but she basically says, we got to erase her memory. We, you know, we can't let her be uh, inflicted with this and it causes a big conflict. Ultimately, Gilgamesh agrees to take care of Thena rather than erasing her memory. He'll just, you know, take her to somewhere secluded and, you know, treat her. And in a fit of rage during this debate, Druig mind controls the entire Aztec population, uh, you know, makes them drop their weapons or whatever, drop everything they're doing, and presumably that is supposed to be like paving the way for the conquistadors to overtake the region. I, I, I don't know. The, the way that this movie, like, like I said, there's a big emphasis on the ways that the Eternals have kind of interfered with human history and have shaped it in all these ways. But, you know, there's, there's all these weird little moments where it's like, 
okay, so I guess they were responsible for the colonization of South and Central America, and the they were also responsible for the atomic bomb, but we'll get into that. Just, like, I don't know, I feel like there's a moral issue with this movie where, like, you know, maybe, maybe, like, that's part of the idea that it's supposed to be that, but there's a sense that, like, you can't necessarily get behind who these characters are, what these characters believe, and especially when there's this this great debate that they have later on in the movie, which we'll get into. And I think the debate is mostly pretty well done, but it, it's sort of a thing where, like, you're not necessarily on the side of the, of the quote-unquote good guys in it. So in the present day, Cersei, Sprite, and Icarus travel to South Dakota to discover that Ajax is dead at the hands of a deviant, apparently. And the deviant is also dead, so I don't know why they thought that made sense. But people die in this movie and that was another thing that i really appreciated was you know there's death and there's love and there's like in addition to like end of the world stakes which there are and they feel very real here in a way that they don't always do in the mcu but there's also just like real emotional stakes in this movie that aren't just you know they aren't they aren't smoke and mirrors they aren't like civil war where there's a debate but you never really get a sense of what the debate is and everyone has to be in the right like there you know there, there are str- there's a stronger sense of stakes in this movie than i think there is anywhere else to be found in the mcu as i recall so um cersei inherits inherits the role of leader from ajak which allows her to communicate with their celestial leader erisham who reveals the horrible truth of their existence the eternals were created not to protect Earth from the deviants in perpetuity, but to ensure the growth of planets throughout the galaxy to serve as eggs for future celestials. So their purpose is to... Basically, the deviants were created as apex predators, or to take out the apex predators of planetary ecosystems to ensure that life would continue to flourish and could build and build to the point where a new celestial could be born from it. But then... The problem with the Deviants was that they were kind of organic and they could evolve. And so they they basically evolved to be apex predators. So it became an old lady who swallowed a fly situation where they built the... The, the Celestials built the Eternals to be sort of uh, cosmic robots, basically, and designed them to, to kill the Deviants... To make sure that the deviants accomplish their job of killing the apex predators, but that they don't get much further than that, and that way, you know, life can continue to expand to the point where a celestial can be born from the planet's core, at which point the planet gets destroyed, but then celestials create billions of other worlds. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I, you know, I guess I have thoughts on that, but we'll get into it. So they gather the rest of the Eternals to break the news to all of them, Kingo has become a Bollywood star, uh, and he's introduced. Uh, he's introduced along with his valet Karun in a scene that like eerily resembles that that Robin Williams clip that was going around like a month ago. <laughs> you know that 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 clip that was going around on Twitter that Zelda Williams had to be like cut that shit out, where the actor was you know playing Robin Williams. There was a scene of uh, of him you know being silly, and then someone's like, oh, but John Belushi died, and he's like. Don't believe she died. <laughs> and what was that actor's name? Jamie Kingo. Coincidence? Anyway, uh, Gilgamesh is still taking care of Thena. They're living in some secluded desert in Australia. They have a nice little dinner scene. They talk about the Avengers for some reason. It really comes out of nowhere. I guess there's like 
a, there's like a sort of sensical line about the Avengers existing or the blip happening or whatever, and then Sprite is like, so now that Captain Rogers and Iron Man are dead, who do you think is going to lead the Avengers? And it's like, I'm sure people care about the Avengers, but I can't imagine that being, you know, dinner conversation. I guess it's it, it's that thing I was talking about earlier where, like, are people interested in fiction or are they just invested in the lives of the Avengers now? And I feel like that is something very interesting that Marvel could and ought to explore at some point in the future. I guess maybe they're kind of doing it with Spider-Man, but we'll see. So, yeah. Gilgamesh spits in the beer. There's a nice little, you know, that this is the, you know... The cabin from Age of Ultron, the like, there's a, you know, there's often these scenes in Marvel movies, they're often in cabins too, where, you know, the team will come together and just sort of have dinner and goof and have, have this moment of feeling real for a second in a movie where they otherwise just feel fake the whole time. They court Druig at his secluded retreat in the Amazon rainforest, where he's still protected by a small group of mind control slaves, maybe? It's sort of ambiguous what these people are doing there, but it's clear that he's, like, you know, using them as sort of, um... They're, they're, they're like puppets, basically. He's using them as liaisons for his messages and his work and whatever he wants to do. I don't know what he's doing there all the time. Is he farming or something? But yeah, he has this small mind control slave army in the Amazon rainforest. Uh, and while they're there, they're attacked by more deviants and those deviants kill Gilgamesh and absorb his powers, gaining a human form. The deaths in this movie don't come when you expect them in a way that I thought was really interesting. They come, you know, I, I guess you could look at it from an outside perspective and be like, a deviant shows up and somebody dies and there's, you know, ten, <laughs> there's, there's ten fucking Eternals, you can get rid of a few of them. But then in moments later in the movie where, like, Cersei gets stabbed or something, you feel like oh, maybe she's gonna die. You know, you know, there's no one in this movie who you feel the entire time is completely safe from death. And part of that is the benefit of all these characters being new. And part of it is just the way that this story is told in terms of death and life being like very real, meaningful things in this movie. Again, in a way that they so rarely are in the MCU and in, you know, action blockbusters in general. Um, the Eternals cremate Gilgamesh, they cremate him, and then they visit Fastos, who is living with his husband and son in America. He had given up on humanity after the deployment of the atomic bomb, which he blamed himself for due to his involvement in presenting the humans with technological advances. It's sort of implied in that that he didn't invent the atomic bomb and that he was he, he felt like he shouldn't have bothered to begin with because someone invented the atomic bomb, but it's a little bit like... It sort of seems like maybe he did invent it, and I mean, if he invented the plow and he invented the steam engine, how did he not invent the atomic bomb? Like, if you're doing the ancient aliens thing, you know, did he invent the internet? Like, what what's the cutoff for human development? It, it, it's a weird line, but... Um, now, in his loved ones, he's found a reason to care again, and so he's unexpectedly one of the ones who cares a lot, even though we only get one throwaway line in the previous scene about how he doesn't care about humanity. But Fasto suggests that Druig can put the Celestial to sleep as he's being born using the power of the Unimind, which is the combined power of all ten, or however many since several have died. Eternals, I guess the Unimind is a thing that can be activated no matter how many you got. It's just like, you know, by their powers combined, but 
usually I would expect that to, to require the whole team. I don't know what's up with that. But uh, finally, they return to their Dorito ship where Makari, the mute speedster, has been camped out waiting for the okay from Arishim to leave Earth. She's in there with her books like, let's get the fuck out of Dodge. Uh, um, you know... A lot of this movie's marketing was about representation. It was, like, first gay superhero. And, you know, superheroes from all over the world, in a way. Uh, even though they, you know, are all aliens or whatever. But, they, you know, they have different accents. But the, the, the whole thing with the marketing... Well, one of the things was that Makari was the MCU's first deaf superhero. And it, but, and it's established, like, pretty early, during the Mesopotamia sequence of the movie, that she can, that, you know, it, it's done in a weird way. It's like, she speaks in sign language, and she doesn't talk, or she's, she's mute, I guess you would say, but the, the, the idea that's put out there, it's sort of treated as if she's deaf, but in this scene, like, these guys are trying to pull a fast one on her by talking when she can't hear it, and then she, you know, snatches them, and then, um, I don't remember who said it, it might have been Druid, but it's like, she can sense the slightest vibrations. She has, like, a super sense of vibration, including when people talk. Which means, and she, you know, hears when people speak throughout the rest of the movie. So, she can hear. <laughs> like, if you can sense vibrations when people talk... And, and when anything else happens, that means that you can, you can hear and you're not, like, that, like, that's what, that's just what hearing is. I don't know in what sense you can call the character deaf. Like, yes, she speaks in sign language and maybe there's representation to be found in that. But to call her deaf and then have a direct line about how she can understand when people talk and have everyone else in the movie talk to her in plain English and she just responds in, in, in ASL, like, <laughs> just the most bizarre thing like I went into this movie thinking there was going to be a deaf character in it and then you know she's talking to you know, this sign language thing and I'm like okay this makes sense and then they're like but she can sense vibrations when people talk like what does that mean Anyway, we learn in flashback that Ajax had told Icarus about the Eternals' true purpose years ago, and then, and then, you know, we see them in South Dakota, like, right before Icarus goes to London, like, Icarus and Ajax are hanging out, and they're on the same page about everything, and they're talking about the oncoming emergence, and then Ajax is like, I don't know if we should, like, let this happen, and Icarus is like, this is our duty, we were made by the Celestials, we have to, you know, do what they say, and so Icarus was the one who killed Ajax and framed a Deviant, which is also interesting. You know, they could have done a scroll thing where it's like, oh, the Deviants are fine, actually, but there's very much, like, the Deviants do kill Gilgamesh, and it's very clear that, like, they are a problem. Like... Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of a weird, sort of a weird, like, element there that he, he was like, oh, I'll drop your body off and I'll think a deviant do it. But I guess it's part of his, like, villain arc. And so I, you know, I get that. But, um, after a heated confrontation in which Icarus tries to, you know, kill his friends some more, uh, keep that from blocking the emergence, he, he just storms off at the end of the day and he's like, I'm gonna make sure the emergence happens. And then Sprite goes with him. In a moment that feels completely out of nowhere, Sprite has been living with uh, Cersei in London this whole time. Sprite has been living among the people, you know, the whole way over here, and she, she just agrees with him. And then also Kingo says, 
that she's in love with him, which is, you know, a, a crazy moment to have. To have this character, Sprite, named Sprite, so visibly gender non-conforming, and then be like, and she's canonically straight, while, you know, half the characters in this movie just don't don't have a sexuality. Kingo's like, no, she's in love with Icarus, obviously, and they could never be together because she looks like a kid. I don't know the, the whole the the whole treatment of the sprite thing and like her she has this arc where like she wants to experience growing up and she doesn't like that she looks like a kid her whole life and like you know I I think that's interesting but the whole way they set that up and then have this this throwaway line about her being in love with Icarus which doesn't come up ever again like I don't know man but yeah sprite goes with Icarus. Kingo also leaves. He's not willing to fight for one side or the other, but he is sort of philosophically on the side that, like, the potential for billions of planets to be created by the Celestial outweighs the loss of the Earth. And then things sort of build up towards this climactic confrontation in the Indian Ocean where the emergence is about to begin. Thena kills the deviant that ate Gilgamesh. Sprite attempts to kill Circe, but Druig saves her, and the remaining Eternals subdue Icarus. Fastos activates the Unimind. Circe uses her transmutation abilities to save the day by turning the Celestial into marble in a scene that really kind of reminded me of uh, Taka turning into Tefiti at the end of Moana. But yeah, uh, you know, same like ocean setting, whatever. But the Earth is saved. Cersei uses the remainder remainder of her Unimind power to turn Sprite into a human so that she can grow up and she'll die, but she's ready for it and she wants it more than anything. This is probably the third time, second or third time that is mentioned in the entire film. And Icarus commits suicide by flying into the sun. Folks, I... <laughs> the suicide. I I I I I don't really get a sense for why Icarus is committing suicide. Like, has he seen the error of his ways, and he's like, "Oh, I get it now that that humanity was worth saving, and I feel terrible for not doing that." Or I think it's really just like his purpose has been to serve the Celestials, and he failed in that mission. So he's like, "Well, now I have to," you know, the same way that a that a knight might uh, ritually commit suicide. I feel like that is sort of the idea here, but it it doesn't really play very well. Anyway, Thena, Druig, and Makari depart on the Dorito to find Eternals from other worlds and, I guess, reveal the truth of their existence to them? I don't know what the plan is exactly. They're sort of going out and then we'll get to the post credit scene. But yeah, Cersei reunites with Dane and Dane is about to reveal a dark secret to her before she is whisked away by Erisham along with the other Eternals that are still on Earth. Erisham says that he plans to use their memories to determine whether or not the people of Earth were truly worth saving. So, very much sets up that, like, that could come back at any time. mid credit scene, the Dorito crew is visited by Pip the Troll, Patton Oswalt, who heralds the arrival of another Eternal, Thanos' brother, Eros, played by Harry Styles. Now, I, I I like Harry Styles. I feel like he, you know, came into this scene with a good swagger, and I feel like him for the role of Eros or Star Fox is really good casting. Uh, the... I don't know if that, I don't know if it's ever going to come up again. It could be like uh, the Howard the Duck thing at the end of Guardians, where it's just like, yeah, this is a fun thing, and no, we're never going to do anything with it. But um, it definitely does seem like Chloe Zhao is responsible for Harry 
ending up in that role. So I don't, I don't think that Marvel like has specific plans for him. But I don't know like what the plan is with this in general, because because you know with Thena and Druig and Makari going off in the in the Dorito to find the other <laughs> Eternals. What, what the fuck am I saying at this point? But like, find other Eternals and do what? You know, are they gonna try and like band all the Eternals in the universe together to take down the Celestials who? for the most part are kind of objectively good like what <laughs> i just i just i don't know what their plan is and then harry shows up like you guys are in for a wild ride and it's like what what's your plan what are you doing here so yeah i that ending did not resonate at all and then there's the final post-credit scene where dane uh, opens a box containing the legendary Ebony Blade. Dane is the Black Knight, by the way, who's a kind of obscure character who I also don't know if he's actually going to show up at any point down the line, but I think he was someone who was cast and they kind of didn't know how far into it he was going to get in this movie or if this was going to be like a, you know, save him for later kind of thing. But yeah, he opens the box with the ebony blade which he inherited from his ancestors and that was the thing that he was going to reveal to cersei before she got whisked away and then as he's about to pick it up an unseen person asks him if he's ready for it and we know that this person is mahershala ali as blade what black knight and blade have to do with each other i don't really know that either we haven't been introduced to blade yet so we don't really know like why he's around or why he's important to this whole story do they know each other but like that's a story to be resolved probably never because like most post-credit scenes in marvel movies chances are these are never going to come up again i hate to say it so what do i think about the movie um it's a lot <laughs> I've, I've in terms of like that critical reaction of negativity i think part of it like I said, I think that the elements of it that are different from the rest of the MCU are pretty uniformly good, and the ways in which it is bad are the ways that it's like other Marvel movies, and I, I, I don't think the critics are completely on the side of, like, we want everything to be the Marvel formula, and if it's different, then fuck you, but um, I think there's a mix of people... This, the, the people who give the formulaic Marvel movies, you know, get them to like a 95%. There's some of that, and there's some of the people who maybe are not aware that like the, the issues with Marvel become more obvious when the rest of the movie is different. But as I pointed out a couple times, I do think that some of the ways in which this movie is different are good. I like the sort of philosophical element to it, the fact that they take different stances in this debate, even if those stances are not always well articulated and um, the, the romances aren't all there some of the time, but I like that there's love at play here. The relationship between Tina and Gilgamesh I thought was really strong. I'd probably say that Angelina Jolie gave the best performance in the movie, and I, I hesitate to say that just because there's so many people in the movie <laughs> but yeah i'm just looking through them now brian tyree henry was great but i do and then barry uh Kilgan was great but i do think that angelina jolie just from having that like old and sick and kind of losing her mind element about her the thing is that all the characters in this movie are kind of the same like they have different stances and different views and maybe different ideas but like their personalities are all you know uh this ancient being burdened with the weight of of immortality this like doug walker said you know that you know fu fucking dog doug walker whatever but he said the the like pull quote on his 
review for this movie on Rotten Tomatoes is like it's like an X-Men movie where everyone is Cyclops and I think you just really get that sense of how like everyone is always like burdened with their immense power and like you know very kind of, kind of stoic about everything and Kingo Kingo gets some jokes off but he's you know even he at a moment's notice can be uh, completely dour like let's just go through these characters and try to make sense of just, just the sheer amount of them. There's Cersei, who has uh, the transmutation abilities, isn't very confident in them. She's very pro-Earth, very pro-humans, wants to kiss all the humans, but also had this very long relationship with Icarus and is definitely still into him. And Cersei, I thought, was kind of underdeveloped. You know, she comes in as the protagonist, and then she's kind of... There's so much focus on the other characters for most of the rest of it just because they want to give them all a chance to shine. And I do think that for the most part they do, but because of that, it feels like Cersei is not there until you get to like the third act and then you're like, yeah, oh yeah, fucking the main character of this whole thing. She is okay and is kind of undermined by uh the the way that this movie tries to do a narrative. Um Sprite has the ability to create illusions. She's got a big old crush on Icarus that's stated in one scene, otherwise never mentioned, not a part of her character at all. And she's burdened by the fact that she looks like a kid forever and never gets to grow up. She lives among the humans with Cersei, but doesn't seem quite as taken with them. Maybe because she's not allowed to, you know, have have these... She's not allowed to kiss them like Cersei is. And she's, she learns the emergence. She takes the side of Icarus. For the most part, they really drop the ball with whatever Sprite was supposed to... <laughs> have going on. I don't think that Sprite's stance really comes together. I don't think that her crush on her crush on Icarus completely out of nowhere in one ear out the other horrible and her even her thing about wanting to be like a real boy doesn't really add up that much doesn't like like it becomes her you know big thing at the end and you're like I guess that's what she wants. But yeah. Icarus Cersei's ex, sort of the, you know, eternal, the lifelong bachelor of the crew. <laughs> he's, he's fucking on everybody. Everybody's, everybody wants to kiss him so bad. And he's been aware of the eternal's true purpose for about 500 years. He's got Superman powers, basically strength, flight, laser eyes. Fastos's kid says that he's Superman. And there are actually references to Superman and Batman in this movie. Which is weird and interesting. I guess that um, it could be a coincidence. It could be like a bit of a wink, like you know we're on we're on good terms now. It could be this thing where like as people have pointed out, it wouldn't be impossible for DC and Marvel to do some kind of crossover thing in the future. So maybe this is they're 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 ambiguous enough where they don't explicitly say like uh superman's real superman's fake batman's real batman's fake so they could be setting it up in such a way where like maybe there is some talk behind the scenes that that could be a thing with the multiverse down the line so like yeah it could be something could be nothing but i i it was noteworthy to me and it's weird to like if the idea is that superman and batman are fictional i feel like it's really weird to be in a world where real superheroes who are very similar to Superman and Batman exist but like people but like kids care about Superman and Batman like people are still comparing a guy to Batman when Iron Man is a real 
a Rupert like like I don't know if it's if the idea is that they're fictional it's sort of a weird thing but I you know I try not to get too bogged down with that kind of thing Icarus is fanatically on the side of letting the Celestial live very like our purpose is to serve the Celestials we gotta do it he kills Ajax for getting in his way uh, his suicide at the end of the movie, I guess, is because he failed in that mission to serve the Celestials, but I don't, you know, another thing that doesn't necessarily feel completely hashed out. Ajak has healing abilities. She's the leader of the group. She communicates with Erisham and has been aware of the Eternal's true purpose for, I don't know if, if she's just known all along or if she was told, like, shortly after they got to Earth. It doesn't, I don't, I don't think it's, clear on like when she knows but she has either agreed to or decided to keep it from everyone else or been told as a rule that she has to keep it from everyone else and she's dead before the movie's uh action truly kicks into gear but she's the one who enforces the rule that the eternals can't interfere in human affairs even though they do many times while under her watch I, like where is she when fastos is doling out inventions like why why is that part of their responsibility but they're not supposed to get involved in human conflict i guess is the thing but you know fastos seems to act like he made something that eventually led to the atomic bomb so i guess i was no but ajak was still alive that was just after the um deviants were around i don't know does make sense to me uh, she seems to be more protective of the group than the humans, and she's but she's opposed to the emergence, but it could be because there's some negative effect on the Eternals rather than the negative effect that it might have on humans. Kingo, Hollywood hotshot with finger lasers. Camille Nagiani got so, like, weird jacked for this role, and everyone was, you know, maybe everyone shouldn't have been clowning on him as much as they were, but, like, he, you know, really intense... <laughs> body training regiment that he underwent for this role where his power is that he shoots lasers out of his fingers why would you go through all that if you're not if, if you're not going to be involved in any like physical conflict for the entire movie and, you know his character is a Bollywood star there's a reason like like the, the the physicality of his character is kind of there but it doesn't feel like it necessarily needed to be you know and he's not particularly invested in humanity one way or the other but he does have his beloved confidant Karun, who sort of puts him on the side of maybe like understanding the importance of humans, but he he also tends to avoid conflict. And philosophically, he agrees that like the emergence is good, and that the you know the celestials like create billions of worlds, and you know this world gets lost, and that's fine. But he he doesn't want to get involved, and really he doesn't get involved <laughs> at the end of the day. Cena distant for a lot of this because of her mad weary uh she has the ability to make some kind of sword out of glowy shit i don't know if she can do anything else other than that she just has like the the glowy shit sword and shield and axe and she just like swings him around and that's that's her power i guess the sword must be really good but uh i don't know it's revealed that her ailment partially consists of like true visions of the eternal's true purpose like she found out and that's why she was sort of sabotaging their she would freak out and go against the mission etc but she's you know there's still some kind of insanity thing there because she like doesn't recognize people and is in this very fragile like suggestive state so you know once once that twist of the eternals reality is revealed they start to do this thing where it's like oh fina you know saw the truth and she we said she was crazy but she really, but she really does have some kind of mental health problem as a result of being eternal which is also weird that none of the rest of them have it but i don't know whatever gilgamesh 
super strong, protects Tina, dies before he can really have a take on things, but he definitely seems to be a proponent of protecting loved ones and goes against the instructions of Erishim, sort of indicates that he would be, again, on the, on the anti-rules pro-protecting Earth uh, side, but we don't see that. Fastos, gay, does machines, once believed that humanity didn't deserve protection, but he's come around on that by the time we see him, which is like a scene after they say that, that, that they don't deserve protection, so like really just a thing that gets uh, picked up and dropped, but he takes the Cersei side um, because he's got a family and he, you know, very pro-human now. Druig, extremely potent mind control, sort of a loner, ends up on the side of Earth, not really for an abundantly clear reason, like, I guess just because he's he, he doesn't like the rules, he doesn't like doing what the Celestials say, he's just sort of an uh, anti-establishment dude, and it doesn't, you know, I don't think he cares about the humans that much, he sort of likes to, uh, enslave them, like I said. And Makari wants to get out of Dodge. She shows up and she's on the spaceship and she's like, when are we getting out of here? She has a very int intimate relationship with Druig. Very weird scene where when we when we meet Makari, she and Druig are getting all up close and personal. And I think Icarus and or Kingo is like, I know Kingo does it, but I don't remember who the other one is. I think it might have been Fastos and Kingo are, are both like, is this, like, what's going on here? Like, is this a new thing? And it's like, well, they haven't seen each other in 500 years, so I have to imagine it's an old thing. Like, I, I, I don't know where that... Because, like, they have a very intimate relationship that somehow the rest of the Eternals were just not privy to. And we don't really see it that much earlier in the movie. We see that, that that they were, like, together and they were close. So, on a level, I don't understand why they're brought in as having that intimate relationship, but on another level, I don't understand what they're trying to imply by saying that the other Eternals wouldn't have picked up on it before. Bakari... Uh, super fast. She's, I guess, deaf, but she can sense vibrations when people talk. She speaks and understand them. She speaks in ASL. She doesn't necessarily have a concrete stance on the on the humanity issue either. She does take the Earth side. So yeah, if you really look at it, it's really there. Are, there are elements of debate that I thought were really interesting when they came up, but really, it's just like Cersei has a side, Sprite has a side, Icarus and Kingo have sides. I guess Ajax posthumously has a side, but like the rest of them are just kind of de facto on the side of Cersei. So yeah, just uh, overall, I guess my thoughts are it visually looks different you know the the, the way that the, the, they're like camera movements and sort of naturalistic things that set it apart from the rest of the mcu but it doesn't look different enough for me to be like necessarily wowed by it um the story mostly doesn't come together i guess there there are a lot of interesting things like i said the stakes are very good and i feel like it feels big and mythic in a way that like you know people complain about civil war and i i would do the same that like at the end of the day it's 12 people fighting in a parking lot and it's supposed to be this you know big universe altering fight i feel like this feels i and maybe this is the final fantasy uh influence that Zhao talked about but it it, it feels like a very it, it feels like a huge conflict like we see 
we see images of you know you know Icarus literally flying into the sun and the Earth getting you know blown to smithereens as a celestial emerges from it. The celestials feel huge. The like there are moments in the fights where it's still like these people are. We have two people standing weirdly far apart from each other, but I feel like for the most part it has a sense of scale. It's very nice. So what this is all coming around to is is it good? I really have to say no. It's it's not good. It, the ways in which it's different from the rest of the MCU are things that should be adopted by every MCU movie from here on out. The, the like the sense of style that it has and the sense of stakes that it has and the like the, like just the thoughtfulness of it. There are a lot of things in here that I think ought to be adopted by everything that Marvel puts out from this point forward. But the movie overall, and again, it's mostly in things that other Marvel movies have, like that 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 sort of dour sense of self seriousness and the and the climax problems and the action, you know, photography issues. Like the problems with it are not Eternals problems; they're Marvel problems. And I guess there is kind of a thing of like introducing all these characters at once and trying to juggle all their stories. Like it's a very Herculean task, and I don't know. I guess Zhao came in as a fan, like she said, but I don't know, the idea of someone watching, like, the writer and being like, this is the person to helm, like, a really big, really, like, expansive superhero movie. Like, I feel like getting an auteur, even someone in in Zhao's category of auteur, to do this movie, I see the logic there, but I just feel like the... I just feel like Zhao is so obviously the wrong choice for this movie in a lot of ways. Yeah, overall, there were some things that I really appreciated about this movie. It's not good. I don't intend to see it again. And, um, yeah. So thank you for listening. Uh, next week, we will have a guest, and we will have a topic. And I don't know who the guest will be or who the topic will be, but we will see. And, uh, yeah, have a, have a lovely rest of your day, wherever you are. I disagree, I disagree, Gary. I disagree. I disagree.